Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out again this evening. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah as we continue in our study of Jonah. And we are looking forward uh, tonight because we are uh, jumping in, as it were, with Jonah into uh, the Mediterranean. And that is where we're going to find him uh, this evening. And that's where we're going to start with him there anyway. It is amazing to me, as I have recounted over and over the number of times that the church, we've been studying church history during the Adult Bible Fellowship in my class, and as we've been going through that, it is amazing to me how many times the authority of the Word of God continues to come back into question throughout history. And that is definitely the case with the passage that is before us. The passage that is before us is perhaps the most contested of any passage that we find in all of the pages of Scripture as to Is Scripture really true when it says that a fish swallowed Jonah? We're going to get into it in just a few moments when we think about that. But as I was studying this, I reflected back onto a time in my previous pastorate where a woman had come into my office and she was distraught. She had been attending a Catholic church for really since birth, and she had a question about the Old Testament, and nobody could answer it for her. And so she had eventually, she had gone from place to place to place, eventually winding up in my office. My secretary at the time says, Pastor, we don't know this lady, but she wants to speak to you about the Old Testament. I said, well, bring her in. Let's, let's see what the Lord has on her heart. And so she came in, and her question was, uh, and of course, when you've grown up in a Catholic world, everybody who's clergy is father. So she's, Father, I have a question for you. And nobody seems to be able to answer it. The question is, is the Old Testament true? I said, yes, it is. She goes, is it literally true? I said, yes, it is. And now I'm getting excited because these aren't questions that Catholic people typically ask me. <laughs> and so she's, she said, I've been reading in the Old Testament. My, my priest says to stop, that he'll tell me what it's all about. But Jonah won't leave my thinking. I said, what about Jonah? She goes, I just can't believe that a fish could swallow a person and the person live. I said, well, the Old and New Testament are literal. They are true. I said, when we think about Jonah being swallowed by a fish, we know that it is our God who created all things. And it is the same God who showed compassion and mercy to Jonah in the belly of the fish, who's showing you compassion and mercy with the cross of Christ. We moved right into the gospel. She didn't believe in Christ that day, but I trust that through that interaction, the Lord would continue to be at work in her life and in her heart. And it fascinates me that it was over a fish that we had this conversation. And that brings us again to tonight. Tonight, we have the great joy of looking into the truth of Jonah and the fish. The truth of Jonah and the fish. And you're not going to hear the truth most places. Uh, when we come to this, there's some sort of allegory, there's some sort of uh, gymnastics, hermeneutical gymnastics to try to get around the literalness of this text. We're going to entertain a few of them tonight as we dig into the text, but we know that the Creator God who created all things is certainly powerful enough to create a fish 
large enough to swallow a man, especially since one still exists today, and then to allow that man to be spit up onto the shore. Jonah's time in the fish was a taste of the hopelessness and helplessness of the Ninevites. So God not only used the fish to save Jonah, God used the fish to demonstrate to Jonah the mercy of God. And praise God for the demonstration of his mercy. That is what we will focus on tonight. We've got the largest text that we're going to deal with at any one point in the book of Jonah. We're going to deal with 11 verses tonight, Lord willing. We're going to begin in verse 17 of chapter 1, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time and his word. Let's read in Jonah 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the opportunity that we have to dig deeply into this narrative that Jonah is giving to us as a negative example of his own disobedience, but a positive example of your mercy and grace, compassion demonstrated to this rebellious prophet. Lord, we praise you that it would be Jonah that Christ would look back to to demonstrate his own time in the grave. What a marvelous reminder of the truthfulness and the veracity of the inspired Word of God that Christ himself would think back to this passage that we have before us tonight, pointing to the time that Christ would spend in the grave. Lord, we praise you that Jonah would give us that picture. We know that it took place literally, and we're thankful for the truth of it because it reminds us of your great mercy and great compassion demonstrated to us as well. So Lord, tonight I pray that you would give me the words to speak and give us hearts willing to listen, that we would be less and less like Jonah and more and more faithful to you, that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things, and it is in Christ's name we pray them. Amen. This evening we're going to begin in Jonah chapter 1 as Jonah is sinking. That's where we left him off last week. Uh, Last week in verse 16, we watched the sailors throw Jonah into, actually verse 15, throw Jonah into the Mediterranean, and the wind suddenly stops, sparking a topside revival. And so Jonah is sinking down into the Mediterranean, it's suddenly calm on the surface, and on the deck of the ship that Jonah was just on, you have a revival taking place. Meanwhile, as Jonah is descending into the depths of the Mediterranean, he had to have gone through a range of emotions of saying, this is it. This is all that there is. And then suddenly, he's consumed. And so, we begin to recognize a clear indication of what's happening. You have a rebellious prophet, but you have an obedient fish. This fish, I've highlighted this fish for a few nights now as we I don't know where he comes into the picture we, exactly. We don't know if he's been following the, the vessel as it sailed down into the Mediterranean and just was sitting and waiting, or if the Lord just brought him to this point. But we see an obedient fish. And this, verse 17, is the probably, as I mentioned a moment ago, the most attacked of every, any other verse in Scripture. This verse 17 This fish has been examined in every possible way, and some far beyond imagination. (laughs) Some people say that Jonah was rescued by a sailing vessel named the fish. 
and that he went down into the belly of the sailing vessel after he had been rescued. Some have said that Jonah made it to shore and he stayed in an inn that was called the fish. We know that no matter what ideas have been thrust out there, that Jonah was indeed swallowed by a real fish. What that fish is, we don't know. However, we do take it at face value, and in doing so, we discover at least one more element of the goodness of the mercy of God and his greatness at the same time. A generation ago, skeptics concluded that no whale could have swallowed Jonah because most whales can't even swallow something the size of an orange without difficulty. That is a scientific fact for most whales. But the whale or the fish that swallowed Jonah wasn't like most. This is from the Britannica.com. You see this is a sperm whale and you have an elephant down here in the bottom corner and a person swimming along under the underside of a sperm whale. Sperm whales are known to swim in the Mediterranean, so that we have no problem there, even to this day. Some quick observations about sperm whales. The average sperm whale's mouth is more than six feet wide and five feet tall. Its throat expands from that, and there are sperm whales that have had a throat that has measured 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and nine feet wide. So once you get into the mouth, you go down the gullet pretty easy. And that is uh, recognized as scientific understanding. Marine biologists have determined that such a large fish could have enough air inside of its stomach for someone to breathe. Of course, the temperature would be a hot and humid 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So if Jonah was swallowed by a sperm whale, he had a very hot, miserable ride back to shore. But there would have been enough air in there to breathe. Now, there is one article, and I think it's worth our exploration. We don't know, indeed, if this is just a made-up story. It's potentially. And there's been efforts, uh, the Australian Times and others have sought to discredit this report. But there seems to be a far, a, a far or a vast amount of support for it. So it's one side says no, the other side says yes. I'm going to read the article to you. It's an article that appeared in 1927 in the Princeton Theological Review. And some, as I said, have doubted its reports, but it reported on a case from 1891. And there was a ship, a whaling ship, titled or called the Star of the East, was hunting in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands when a fisherman spotted a large sperm whale. Two smaller boats were sent after it. One was able to harpoon the whale. But those in the second boat were thrown into the ocean as the boat was capsized. All were rescued, but two, one of them they discovered had drowned. The other one disappeared. The one who disappeared, his name was James Bartley, and uh, he just vanished. They couldn't find him. In time, the whale was killed and drawn to the side of the ship where it was secured and divided over the next day. The following day, the stomach was separated from the carcass. It was hoisted onto deck. When it was opened, the missing sailor was found inside. Unconscious, bleached white, but still alive. He was revived <laughs> and after some time resumed his duties on board the vessel. I don't think he went out into the whaling dinghies anymore. 
Whether those accounts are accurate or not, we don't need an article to believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Do you know why? Because verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Was Jonah swallowed by a great fish? Yes, he was. And we know that he was swallowed by a great fish, and we unapologetically believe it because Scripture says that the Lord appointed it to happen. The Lord appointed it to happen. Jonah was not swallowed by a fish by happenstance. He wasn't swallowed by a fish because somebody thought he would be good bait. He was swallowed by a fish because God appointed the fish to be there when Jonah would rebel to that point. And just like the wind, the Lord appointed it to happen. And this becomes an important theme in the book of Jonah. God is going to appoint. God is going to be at work. And indeed, that is our next point. God is the one who appoints. This is such an important statement to the book. God had prepared a fish for this purpose. The question is not, is there a fish big enough to swallow Jonah? The answer to that is yes, there is. But that's not the question. Rather, the question is, is God big enough to create and command the fish? That's really the crux of the issue. And if you're a doubter of this, then you deny, you deny and doubt the power of God. Or you accept the power of God if you say, yes, this is possible. How is it possible? The same way 5,000 were fed with a few loaves and a couple fishes. In fact, we see now, this is the first command that God gave a fish that's recorded in Scripture, but it's not the last. Can anybody, this is, we're kind of uh, a little less formal on Sunday evening, anybody think of another time that God gave a command to a fish? What's that? Peter's tax. Matthew chapter 17, verse 27. Peter's tax. The Lord commanded a fish to hold a shekel in its mouth. The size of a nickel would be roughly the same size as a nickel, a shekel in its mouth, then commanded it to take Peter's bait. And when Peter caught the fish, the Lord told Peter uh, that the fish would have the money needed to pay the taxes. I like to fish, but I'd really like to fish if it paid me. Uh, and that's what we see here is Peter's fish. Also, it wasn't just fish that the Lord commanded. The Lord commanded the ravens to take care of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 6. And throughout the book of Jonah, we're going to do a quick summary. I'm not going to have you turn to this, but think of the quick summary as I read them. We see creation obeying the command of God. We have this passage here where the, giant, the great fish swallowed Jonah. The second time is when the fish is commanded to spit Jonah up onto the beach. We're going to study that, Lord willing, by the time we're done here this evening, in chapter 2, verse 10. The third time is when the Lord appointed a plant to grow up, in chapter 4, verse 6, so quickly that it would provide shade uh, within moments for Jonah. And then the Lord appoints a worm to destroy the plant, in chapter 4, verse 7. And then the Lord appointed a hot east wind to blow against Jonah, chapter 4, verse 8. That was a rough chapter for Jonah, <laughs> But think of all of the times that God commanded creation to do something that was outside of what we would consider the norm. Five times. Five times. 
In the book of Jonah, it's recorded. That's why so many throughout church history have struggled with the veracity and the inspiration of Jonah. And yet, it was Christ who would use Jonah as the example of his own death and the time he would spend in the grave. The Lord would say, the Lord himself would affirm to the veracity of Jonah. And he would do that not only then in that example, but he would do it again in Luke chapter 24, not once, but twice, where he affirms the authority and the inspiration of the Old Testament as a whole. Each time that God appoints his creation, listen carefully, it was like the fish it obeyed. It was the prophet who did not obey. Beloved, there's a lesson in this for you and I. When God speaks to his creation, it obeys. The exception, temporarily, is you and I. We are the ones who desire to be disobedient. Jonah was disobedient. Temporarily, Jonah was disobedient. For Jonah, now dropped down into the belly of the fish, God was allowing him to experience the hopelessness and helplessness we spoke of a few moments ago. This was the same thing that the Ninevites unknowingly were feeling as they were distant from the things of the Lord. And now Jonah can identify with them as well as with the Israelites. And so Jonah does something that he should have done a whole chapter ago, and we wouldn't have the four chapters of the book of Jonah. If Jonah just would have done what he is about to do in chapter 2, verse 1, then we wouldn't have had the book of Jonah, most likely, although he's continuing to have a heart of rebellion later, so maybe there would have been a a shortened version of Jonah. But notice what he does in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. You know what? Never been in the belly of a fish, but I bet he did pray. Uh, That would not be a comfortable place to be in the belly of a fish. Jonah Praise Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Chapter 2, finally, Jonah prays. We're not told when he prayed. Some believe that Jonah prayed immediately upon being swallowed, as he's being swirled into the gullet of the fish and down into its belly. I I personally kind of lean towards, it took Jonah a while. I don't know that. The text doesn't indicate it. It just says that he prayed. It doesn't give us any other details. But it sure seems, given Jonah's intensity and desire to die and not to go to Nineveh, remember, he doesn't pray on the, the deck of the ship. He doesn't pray at any moment up there. He could have saved himself and the sailors. He didn't know that by being thrown into the ocean, the seas would stop. He assumed, but he didn't know that. There was no guarantee. And so he's willing to risk their lives and his at the top of the ocean. I imagine it took a day or two for him to realize, you know what? This is going to be a very cruel way to die. He's still thinking he's going to die. We're not told when he prayed, but I imagine it was still going to take some time before he realized that He wasn't right with the Lord. Some believe that Jonah waited until the third day to pray, and I would be probably among that group. You could convince me out of that, but I I feel like Jonah took three days to pray. But we simply don't know. But this is where we don't want to get caught looking at the surroundings 
and miss what actually happens in the heart of Jonah. It's easy for us to get caught on the fish stories. And let's be careful. We admire the pictures of the fish story. But let us get into the heart of what's going on in Jonah. And in order to do that, we see first his admission. We want to understand some ingredients of Jonah's prayer. This is a prayer of repentance. What does it look like to repent? And remember, Jonah is a follower of God. So this isn't a repentance for salvation, but this is a repentance for disobedience. And verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is the only recorded prayer, the only recorded prayer underwater. And Jonah's praying it. There are three elements that define genuine repentance in Jonah's prayer. First is admission. Jonah cried out to God admitting that the distress he was experiencing was God's hand of discipline and his own rebellion. So this was the result of God's discipline to him and Jonah's rebellion. Notice again what he says. He said, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me, that is, the Lord cast him into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded him. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah knows that he's been running. Jonah knows that he's been fleeing from the Lord, and he knows that what is going on is not by happenstance. He didn't wind up in the belly of a fish because the fish was hungry. Jonah knows that. That's important for you and I. Because Hebrews tells us that the Lord chastens those whom He loves. Chastening is not a pleasant experience. The Lord had been chastening Jonah all along the way. But Jonah hadn't received it, hadn't accepted it. And now here he is at perhaps the most violent of discipline. And Jonah is having time to consider the discipline that is there. Jonah knows that he's in the belly of the fish because Jonah was running from God. He knows that. And he confesses it. He admits it. And he admits that he deserves the discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 through 9, just write that text down. We don't have a lot of time this evening to get there, but... Hebrews 12, 5-9 provides a counterpart to this text. According to Hebrews 12, 5-9, we can find, uh, we can respond, rather, to God's discipline in one of four ways. And Jonah's going to respond in one of these four ways. First, we can despise God's discipline and fight it, chapter, or verse 5 of Hebrews 12, or we can be discouraged and faint because of it, that's the second half of verse 5, or we can resist it and invite more of it, that's in verse 9, or we can submit and grow because of it, that's in verse 7. You only get one of four responses to the discipline of God. And actually, you can do more than one, but you can only do these four. That would be a better way of saying it. You can participate in more than one of these, and we see Jonah is doing that. He originally despises the command of the Lord, and he flees. Then he's discouraged, 
which we're going to see later in the book. He resists it, which we see on the top side of the Mediterranean. And finally, he's submitted to it as he's in the belly of the fish. At this point, Jonah was no longer resisting the will of God. He's not rejecting the word of God. He is crying out from the belly of a fish. Jonah's focus to this point in the narrative had been the opposite of God's authority. The best word at this point to describe Jonah's situation is down. (laughs) Think of what we've seen him so far. He rose up to flee and went down to Joppa. He paid the fare and went down into the ship. He went down into the Mediterranean. He went down into the belly of the fish, and Jonah was now going down into the deep abyss in the belly of the fish, the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah has been on a downward spiral. But following in mission, the next element of repentance is restoration. And this is a change from your bulletin. I highlighted... uh, repentance when I probably should have highlighted restoration. That would be, so uh, you can cross out the rest of the line. It was not as polished as it needed to be and put in restoration. Uh, After admission, Jonah is working on restoration. And notice this in verses 4 through 7. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, and the roots of the mountains are at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, there are those who say that this is perhaps Jonah prophesying that he's about to be released. I don't believe that's what Jonah's doing. But Jonah is looking ahead to a restoration. Whatever that restoration is, what he has done is he's pulled from 1 Kings 8, verses 38 and 39. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication when the temple was completed. This was Jonah looking back and saying, this is the restoration moment. This is when the Lord dwelt with his people. And so after admission, Jonah is restored as he is looking ahead. In verses 5 and 6, Jonah believed he was going to die. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. He says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Verses 5 and the first part of verse 6, Jonah believed he's going to die. By the end of verse 6, reflecting on how Jonah refused to pray when he was on the ship, running from God, Jonah remembers the Lord. But I still don't believe that Jonah thought he was going to be released from the fish. I believe that Jonah understood this to be the mercy of God that Jonah saw the mercy of God demonstrated to him in this way, but he also saw the hand of God in preserving him to this point. But I believe that Jonah thought he was still going to die. One author writes this, Isn't it marvelous 
that God has mercy on Jonah before Jonah will preach that God will have mercy on Nineveh. The Lord is teaching Jonah what Jonah is about to teach to the Ninevites. And the Lord has allowed Jonah to flee. The Lord has allowed Jonah to get out into the middle of the Mediterranean before the Lord is going to teach him this lesson. Jonah is learning the lesson that he's about to proclaim. I can't tell you how many weeks this happens to me. (laughs) I'm preparing to preach a message, and I'm preaching to the preacher along the way. I learn more from the messages than you learn from the messages because the Lord is working on my heart. Well, that is what's happening here. The Lord is working on the heart of Jonah. And as the Lord is working on the heart of Jonah, it's taken Jonah some time to get to this point where he finally turns his face towards heaven. And it is marvelous that God had mercy on Jonah to teach him this lesson. Could Jonah have a prophecy or an understanding that he would be released? Perhaps. But even then, we have no record that Jonah ever goes back to the temple. And that's what Jonah is proclaiming, that he would see the Lord in the temple. Look again upon your holy temple. I think Jonah is looking ahead to death. But in looking ahead to death, he's remembering even the mercy of God as the weeds are wrapped around his head. And despite it being a quick, succinct book, Jonah has allowed for some graphic words to be used here. He's giving us a picture of what life is like inside the fish. And inside the fish is not a pleasant place to be. He's swimming around with all the seaweed or whatever is there. It's all wrapped around. He's tangled into it. And he's crying out to the Lord. So there is admission. There's restoration. His relationship with the Lord is being restored. And there is appreciation. Look into verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What an interesting statement from a prophet who, a few verses earlier, had refused to pray for God's mercy to deliver even the sailors who were on the vessel with him. Now look at his heart. Verses 8 and 9, Jonah has no promise of deliverance. There is nothing in the text to indicate that Jonah had promised that he would be delivered. But he's committed to serving the Lord, even in these last moments. He's not on dry land. He hasn't been spit up onto the beaches. He is thankful that God had turned his heart from rebellion. Notice what he says, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. Where's Jonah? He's in the belly of a fish. Jonah's in the belly of a fish, and he says, I am different than the idol worshipers, those who worship other gods, who have no hope. They they forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, while I'm in the fish, will sacrifice to you. We learn a lot. And I said, let us not be too harsh on Jonah, because we're going to learn a lot about Jonah. We've seen it already. Jonah is still the head of his class and the prophets in a, in a time where the prophets were at their highest level, in, especially in northern Israel. 
Jonah's not on dry land. It's taken a lot to get him to this place of repentance, but part of repentance, part of the recognition of what is going on is he is now thankful from the, heart of a, from the belly of a fish. He has a heart of thankfulness. God had turned his heart from rebellion and caused him to call on the name of the Lord once again. And that brings thanksgiving to a rebellious prophet's lips. It's interesting when we think of all this, this last phrase, salvation is from the Lord. This is not so much a, it is a theological statement, but for Jonah, it's more than, it's more than a theological declaration. It is a personal confession of faith. He knows this to be true. He's proclaimed this for decades in ministry. What Jonah is doing is he's contrasting himself with those who serve and worship idols, namely the Ninevites. Namely the Ninevites. Jonah, I think, understands what the Lord is doing. Jonah is saying, I understand that this is different. I understand the hopelessness and the helplessness of the Ninevites. He uses those phrase, that phraseology. Notice again verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols, forsaking their hope of steadfast love. Jonah had been running from the Ninevites. You better believe that the Ninevites were on his mind, the belly of the fish, when the Lord has spared him. But there is an interesting phrase that we have to deal with. Jonah could not offer sacrifices, but he said he's going to offer sacrifice. He says, verse 9, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. He gave us a hint as to what the sacrifice is. It's with his voice. Sacrifice of praise with his voice. Jonah likely had Psalm 51 in mind. Let's turn back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, there's reason that I believe that Jonah had this in mind. This was after Nathan the prophet had come to David and had shook his finger in the face of David. And, and in the questioning that Nathan had gone through, he says to David, you are the man, you are the one who stole the one man's sheep. When you have plenty of sheep, you stole the one man's sheep in Bathsheba. And Nathan has confronted him. And David writes this hymn. He says this, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words." And blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and, the in, and in the inner being, inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud for your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with burnt offering. And this is where I think we see Jonah's heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. All of the sacrifice that David could have done to demonstrate a contrite spirit was vanity unless he had a contrite spirit. And the Lord knows that. It's fascinating to me the way that Jonah has approached this confession, this prayer of confession. Because Jonah's approach to this uh, certainly seems to be leading us to what the psalmist is doing when he and his sin were found out. David said in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We find Jonah helpless and hopeless in the belly of a fish. But when we find him helpless and hopeless in the belly of a fish, he says these words, But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah certainly seems to have Psalm 51 summarized, certainly, but Psalm 51 in mind. Jonah offered up to God the sacrifices of a repentant, and humble heart. And God responded. God responded by giving the fish indigestion. <laughs> and he spit him up on the shore. And that brings us to Jonah's deliverance. And again, I want us to notice God's command. Going back to Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It is fascinating to me that it is not until you have a repentant and contrite prophet that God allows the fish to spit Jonah up onto the shore. And it is also fascinating to me that God commanded the fish to spit him up onto the shore. The fish naturally, would not spit up on dry land. But that's where Jonah wound up. Verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish. You can imagine, Jonah doesn't give us all the details, you can imagine the smell and the scene on some beach someplace as Jonah is spewed out onto the beach. But we must not miss again the command of the Lord. The fish obeyed again. The fish obeyed again. The command of the Lord. The fish could not digest the prophet because the Lord would not allow it to digest the prophet. And he spit him up onto the beach. What is important for us to note is the mercy of God demonstrated to a repentant and contrite heart. If you were to take the prophet out of this, take Jonah out of this, take his rebellious ways and highlight his repentant heart, what a lesson there is for you and I who know Christ as Savior. 
What a lesson. God will go to great lengths to draw you to himself. Probably not a fish, I'm just saying. But the Lord will go to great lengths to draw you to himself. But he will not be mocked. Let us be those who are faithful in listening to the chastening of the Lord before we wind up in a situation like Jonah. It is also interesting, and as I mentioned it before, at the command of the Lord, the fish did not only spit Jonah out, but he spit him out on dry land. The rebellious prophet had returned, and a little bit of wordplay by express whale instead of express mail, uh, he returned back to the service of the Lord. Remember where we found Jonah? The very beginning of the book? Let us go back. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarsus, away from the presence of the Lord. We found Jonah going down. We found Jonah fleeing. We found Jonah, as we studied, when we studied this passage, Jonah turning in his resignation. He knew he could not flee from the presence of God, from the immediacy of God's presence. He knew that. He had proclaimed such truth. But he believed he could resign from the work that God had for him. And that's what he had sought to do. When we pick him up, by the end of the next chapter, Jonah is spit up onto the beach. The prophet who had retired is now reactivated. And he is going to do the work that he's going to do. It is interesting as well as we think of this individual I shared about earlier and whether the story about him is true or not. There's a lot of details about him, this James Bartley. Uh, but James Bartley evidently was bleached for the rest of his life. And he lost all of his hair because of the digestive juices of the sperm whale. And he was partially blinded. Those were some of the symptoms. Let us assume that Jonah did not escape the belly of the fish unscathed by the digestive juices. Jonah would have been quite the sight walking into the land of the Ninevites, bleached, probably bleached white, perhaps without any hair. And Jonah is going to be a powerful witness for the mercy of God. In fact, we see him, chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to end here. We're not going to study it. We're just going to read it, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Jonah, at the end of chapter 2, is put back into service. And the very next thing that the Lord says is, I told you what to do. Go do it. Go do it. Beloved, let us be those who are willing servants of the Lord. Let's pray that we would be receptive the chastening of the Lord. Let us not be as Jonah was in chapter 1 and into chapter 2. We have a lot to learn yet from this prophet. 
As we come into chapter 3 and we're going to slow down from where we have been, we studied 11 verses tonight, we will be digging into those a little bit more intensely in the next few verses to come. But let us be those who are mindful, always mindful of Jonah. And I would encourage you to use the book of Jonah in your evangelism. It is surprising to me how many people have doubts about the veracity of Scripture, about the inspiration of Scripture because of the book of Jonah. But it is in this book that we have the greatest opportunity to share the mercy of God that is available to them. And we not only have it in what God did to the Ninevites, but what God did to Jonah. That is the lesson we've learned tonight. The mercy of God does not stop when you've come to know Christ as Savior. The mercy of God is renewed every morning. And for that, we rejoice. Let us close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the example of Jonah because he provides to us a demonstration of your great mercy, not just now in chapter 2. Lord, I praise you that you would go ahead and continue to use this rebellious prophet, and despite his own rebellious nature, he is going to be one who is going to fulfill the commands, but he's going to fulfill the very least that he could possibly do. Lord, we pray that we'd learn from that as well as we will study those verses in the weeks to come. But now I pray that as we move ahead that your name will be glorified as we continue to put into practice what we've learned tonight. Lord, cause us to be repentant quickly, that we'd be listening to the chastening that comes because of rebellion against you. May we be those who are diligent to help one another out and to encourage one another as well. And then, Lord, I pray that what you have commanded us, we will do. We praise you that your word is clear on some of these commands. We know what we should do. Now I pray that you'd give us opportunity and that we would be faithful in accomplishing them. Lord, we again praise you for the example of Jonah. We ask your blessing upon us as we depart from here, that your name would be glorified in all of these things and that you would be exalted in them all. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it this evening. In your son's name we pray. Amen.